So this morning, as we continue in, um, in the Gospel of John, or in uh, John chapter 11, I'm going to do a little bit of a recap of what we did last week. Last week, we looked at the first half of John 11, and uh, we saw there that Jesus and his disciples hear of Lazarus' death. And so, what does anybody do? I mean, well, in this case, Jesus waits two more days uh, to go. And Jesus speaks with Martha, the, uh, one of the sisters here, and asks if she believes that he is, if she believes that he is the resurrection and the life, that he that believes in him, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And he says, do you believe this? And she responds with, yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And so we're going to, this morning, go into the second half of this conversation. You know, now it's going to be, uh, Mary's going to come into the conversation with Jesus. And we're going to see how that plays out. So, Tim, if you could play that for us. And when she had so said, she went her way, and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come, and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly, and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then which were with her in the house, and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit, and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees, and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council, and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. 
And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priest and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. So this morning, as you see, we were in uh, John chapter 11, verse 28. I forgot to mention uh, that at the beginning part of, uh, in verse uh, 28. But as we see from last, uh, Jesus had ended his conversation where Jesus, you know, like I said, had uh, stated, I am the resurrection and the life, that, that he that believe in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever believeth or live, uh, liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And he asked the question, you know, believest thou this? And she answers, Yea, Lord, I, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. So she's giving her confession of faith. She, she says, I believe, Jesus, that you can do this. I believe that you have this, this power to do this. So she believes at this point. So what we're going to do is now we're going to pick up the conversation with Mary. And so Martha goes quickly to Mary. And when Mary finds out, what does she do? She's going, to, uh, she's going to go quickly to Jesus. Now, the strange thing was, is that when, she, uh, when Jesus first gets there, when he first arrives, Martha goes, but it says that Mary uh, you know, sat still. So either she was so troubled by the fact of her brother dying, or she didn't hear. One of the two, because she just sat still while her other, you know, while her other sister, while Martha goes and, and seeks, uh, you know, seeks Jesus. But in verses uh, 28 through 30, it says this. In John chapter 11, it says, And when she, had, uh, so, uh, when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The master is come and calleth for thee. And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in the, uh, that place where Martha met him. And so this is kind of a strange you know, situation that Jesus hasn't even gotten into town yet, and they're running out to go see him. And, that, um, and you remember that you have Thomas earlier on in this chapter. He had talked about, he says, yeah, let's go there so that way you know, all the people there, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of them can kill, uh, you know, can kill us too. So, but they're not even in town yet, so they haven't even got there. But Mary and Martha meet him out there, and so Jesus is, um, you know, is talking to them before they even get to the house on this, and so in verse thirty-one, we uh, we see where it says that uh, says the Jews then, which were with her in the house, comforted her. And when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, she uh, went out, followed her, saying, "She goeth unto the grave to weep there." 
And so since Martha had come privately, the Jews there didn't really understand or realize what had happened. Because Mary, I mean, yeah, Martha comes over to Mary and basically tells her privately or secretly saying, Jesus is here. So she doesn't announce it to everybody. She doesn't know. So everybody else is, is wondering what is happening, what's going on. So they're following her, trying to figure out what's going to happen, what's going to go on. And it's interesting, in the next verse, we're going to see that uh, Mar- uh, Mary says the same thing that Martha did when she encountered Jesus. So in verse 32, it says this, Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. She says the exact same thing that, that Martha, her sister, said. She said, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. If you just had, had been here. So what we can look at, what, what we can realize is the fact that they believed the same thing, that Jesus could heal a person from sickness or even to the point of death, but they don't really believe the fact that Jesus can heal somebody outside of that. That, that Jesus cannot heal somebody who's dead. They must not have heard the other stories where Jesus had, had raised a little boy from the dead and a little girl from the dead as well. Jesus had done these things, and so it wasn't you know, uh, you know, such an amazing thing, but I think it's along the lines that Lazarus had been dead for so long. And they believe at this point that the only way that they're going to see Lazarus is at the resurrection of the dead, you know, when everybody, you know, the rapture happens, that's the only way they're going to be able to see their brother again. And so in verses uh, 37 through, uh, 30, sorry, 33 through 37, we get this, this conversation you know, that, that begins to happen. Verse 33, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came, to, uh, came with her, uh, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? That they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold, how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? So everyone around here up to this point believes that Jesus could heal somebody, but cannot bring somebody back from the dead. Everyone, the Jews there believe it. They said, You know what? He, he restored the, you know, the sight to the blind. Couldn't he, uh, couldn't he have done the same thing? Couldn't he have, have stopped him from dying? Well, here's the interesting part. The shortest verse in the Bible is verse 35. The shortest verse in the Bible is John eleven thirty-five. It says, Jesus wept. And the thing is that so many times people like bypass that because it's a short verse. But there's so much in that, just in that one verse, that we need to realize that what it means is that Jesus feels how we feel. That when he sees us weeping, he weeps with us as well. That's why the Bible says, you know, comfort those who mourn. All right? It says, blessed, you know, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. And so we also know that Jesus, he knows that Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. He knows this already. So he's not weeping over the fact that Lazarus is dead. He's weeping because his friends are weeping. His friends are crying. He's joining in with them. We see this, that Jesus, we know this because of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, which says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, 
but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus feels the same things that we feel. If you hurt, he hurts. If it pains you when you lose somebody to death, it pains Jesus as well. Luke chapter uh, 19, verse 41 says, And when he had come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Why did Jesus weep when he came over a city? Or why did he weep at this point? Jesus wept for the same reason, like I said, the same reason we weep when we lose someone. Death is, death is the result of sin. Death wasn't the original design. When God created us, you know, created Adam and Eve, he created us to be in communion with him, constant communion. There was not supposed to be a disconnect. But death is the result of sin, which is rebellion. We know Adam and Eve rebelled. And you know what rebellion is? It's unbelief. Because we believe that we know better than who? Than God. And so that's why, that's what we see ultimately with, with death is that death led because of the fact of unbelief. Adam and Eve originally, if they were to believe Jesus, you say, well, Jesus wasn't back in the garden. Yes, he was. Jesus has always been. That's why it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. He's always been. Who do you think was walking around with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day? He has always been. Verse 33, where it says that, um, that he was grieved, that he weeped, he groaned in his spirit. His heart breaks when our heart breaks. He already, like I said, he already knows Lazarus was ra will be raised from the dead. Because why? Because he's the, res uh, he's the resurrection and the life. He knows this. Verse 38, Jesus therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stove laid upon it. Now, if you look at that verse right there, that is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to, uh, how he's going to die. It's a foreshadowing, a glimpse into the future of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What does it say? It says what? It says that it was a cave and there was a stone laid upon it. Now, the difference with this one is that men were able to move the stone. When Jesus is raised from the dead, who raises it? Angels do. This is a foreshadowing of of what's to come. Jesus is, is showing them this is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to be. And like I said, the scripture says he groaned in his spirit in verse uh, 33. And in verse 38, it says Jesus groaning in himself. Some explain this groaning to have risen from indignation. Some people believe that Jesus was actually mad because people were, were, were not believing him. Can you believe that? that there are some people that are actually mad because they, they think that just because they did not believe at that moment that Jesus was, was mad at this because uh, he was offended at their unbelief. But let's compare Scripture with uh, Scripture. Let's go over to Romans chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 18, and it says this. It says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him 
who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So even in that part, we see the fact that there's an expectation to do what? To be delivered from a bondage of corruption into what? Glorious, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Let's go on. It says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And we know, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within, uh, within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for, for that which we see not, then we do, we do with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not uh, that we should pray, that we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself uh, maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be, utter, uh, cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them which are called according to his purpose. Well, we can see, we can see a couple things in here. We see that creation groans in pain. We see a creation, we see that creation groans in pain. And secondly, the spirit itself groans making intercession for us. Jesus, as he was, as he is moved in the spirit and by the Holy Ghost, uh, he comes as victor to defeat death. He is awaiting the glorious liberty of the children of God and the adoption and the redemption of our bodies. This is what we see. This is, this is what Jesus is groaning for at this moment. He, he, he longs for that day that our bodies are redeemed, that we don't have to, that he doesn't have to you know, worry about, I guess, in a sense, that we sin again, that we are disconnected from him. He knows that death is one of the reasons why you know, there's this disconnect. Because of the fact of rebellion and unbelief, what happens? We have a disconnect between God and man. But what does Jesus do? He always provides a way for us to come back into communion with him. That's why he died upon the cross. God uh, always is, is seeking us, like I said this morning, for God commandeth his love toward us even while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So while you're out doing your own little thing and, and, wanting, uh, and wanting to be in unbelief, Jesus provided the way. Verse 39. And Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sitter, uh, sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead for four days. This again, remember, as we said last week, the Jewish people thought that after four days, or sorry, after three days, that the spirit or the soul left the body, gone on to either heaven or hell, had already left. And so they, that's why at this point they're going, there's no way that my brother is coming back. So now it's four days back, uh, past that, and so they're going, it's over with. 
It's a, it's a good thing. We'll see him one day. We'll see him at the rapture, but that's about it. He's gone forever. Until then. Verse 40. Jesus said unto, uh, said unto her, Said I not uh, unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. This is similar to what he says to the disciples. He told them that if you would, if you would just believe, you could see the glory of God. If you would believe that you should see the glory of God, this is the same thing that he says to, to, to Martha, he says it to Mary, and he's saying it also to the Jewish people around her. He says to him, says, did I not tell you if you would believe you should see the glory of God? Remember the entire synopsis or the entire, you know, if we want to look at the gospel of John and, and conclude it all in one thing, the whole reason why John wrote the gospel is why? That we may believe. That's the whole point. He, he wrote the gospel that we would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what? Be saved. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 7. It says, the same came, uh, the same came for a witness to bear, rec uh, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The whole point of John writing this, and this is, uh, as I said last week, this account only happens in the Gospel of John. The story of Lazarus being raised from the dead only happens in John. And we uh, historians believe the only reason why is because th he was still alive that when he wrote this. And they didn't want people to go, because their whole, look, you know, fast forward to uh, chapter 12, which we'll go into next week, they wanted to kill Lazarus. Because you can't really, uh, you know, you can't really say, well, they, uh, Jesus raised him from the dead if, from the dead if he's already dead. And so his, they're trying to, to not only kill Jesus, but also Lazarus at this point. And back in you know, Romans chapter 8, uh, verse uh, 18, it says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Think about that. We must always remember that we will suffer in this world, in this life. See, I don't want to suffer. I don't either. But we're always going to. Why? Because, uh, but when we can, you know, we can sit there and say, I don't want to suffer, I don't want to do this. But when we compare it to the glory to be revealed, nothing else compares. We always have to keep our eyes upon the prize, basically. We can't sit there and say, you know what, I, I think I'm going to leave Jesus behind, or I'm not going to believe on him, or I don't want to follow him, or do all this kind of stuff, because I don't want to suffer. We need to keep our focus on the fact that, that this world is not what we're living for. We don't live for this world. We live for the world to come. We live for heaven, for glory, to be with Jesus Christ. As I said before, is that this world, is for the believer, is the only hell we'll ever see. Because we have a hope and a future in Christ Jesus. Amen? We don't try any... So when next time that you're, uh, that you're suffering for the Lord, and I say for the Lord... Because some people say, well, I'm just suffering for Jesus. Now, sometimes you bring on stuff on your own. I hate, to, I hate to be the bearer of bad news for you. Sometimes you bring on your own stuff. I know this because I usually open up my mouth, and that's usually where it starts. But when we're suffering for Christ, we need to keep our gaze and our focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That this right here is not 
what I'm living for. Too many people nowadays are, are wanting the bigger, better deal. They want the bigger house. They want the, uh, the better car. The, you know, they want all this stuff. They want all this money. And what's going to happen uh, to money? What's going to happen to your house? It's all going to be burned up. I'm not saying you're living in California. I'm saying the fact is, is that what the Bible says is that when this is all said and done, everything's going to burn up. So that you know, paper that you have in there that you, that you fight so much for to get is going to be gone. And I always find it strange, uh, you know, strange that people will go to work and, and work tirelessly and tirelessly and tirelessly to provide for their family. But the thing is, is that what we must realize is that our family is our ministry. Our family is our ministry. If we go and we make a million dollars at work and, we're like, and we retire a millionaire and our family is a bunch of heathens going around there and, and don't even love the Lord, then we've lost everything. We must, we must lead by example. Amen? Verses 41 and 42 says this. Then they took away the stone from the place where Jesus, or where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Now here's the thing is, is that he thanks God. He thanks them you know, because of the why, because of the people around. He's trying to set an example for everybody else around him. He thanks them. And that's, that goes, obviously goes along with Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, which says, Be careful for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be, uh, be made known to God. We cannot sit there and say, my request is too small. I don't think I'm going to do it. Or, uh, you know, I don't want to thank him for that little piddly thing. No, it says, that, it says to do what? But in everything. In everything. We are to give, we are to give, uh, we are give, uh, to give our request to God. And what I also realize, you know, uh, go through here is that, that when I look at it is, is that Jesus Christ is our only mediator. He's our only mediator. What does that mean? He's our go-between. There are other religions that teach. One mainly is the, you know, the Catholic faith that teaches that you've got to go through the saints or through Mary in order to get to Jesus. That she's going to be your mediator. The Bible never says that. Nowhere. It's not even mentioned, not even hinted at, at anywhere. And we can see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. I don't have to go to somebody else. I can go right to the source. I can go right to the source. And what does he say? He said he, he did this because he, he already knows that Lazarus is going to raise from the dead. Because I did this because, I, because of the people around me. I wanted them to hear that you have already heard me. Because of what I'm about to do, that way they know where it's coming from. And because he's our mediator... He, because he's our mediator, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, it says, And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What's our inter, uh, eternal inheritance? Everlasting life. Eternal life. He is our mediator of the New Testament. 
you know, everybody tried to, uh, in the Old Testament, try to follow all this stuff and, and try to go, you know, and the thing is, is that the entire time, only thing that God was ever asking is that you would believe on him. Old Testament, New Testament, however you want to say, is that the people would have trust and faith enough to believe that God is who he said he is. Plain and simple. That's the short of it. Everybody considers that, well, he had a sacrificial system and everything else. But if they had faith, if they believed on him, the ones who, the ones who truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what? Got saved in the Old Testament. Because why? Because they trusted in who God is, who he said he is. And Jesus, yet again, in these verses, says it again, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. He wants us to believe. It is something so simple and so, uh, so easily, you know, so many times people say, well, that just seems you know, so simple and easy. I don't think I could ever believe that. You know, there has to be a catch. There has to be something else to it. It is plain and simple. He says that you may believe. He says that if, that if you confess with your mouth, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that confession is made with the mouth, right? Then you believe. That's it. But it's so difficult and so hard for people to do it. It's almost along the lines of, I'll say this in my case, it's so hard for me sometimes to say I'm sorry to a person that I don't want to be sorry to. There's times where I know that I'm wrong. I know flat out that I'm wrong, but I would rather argue than say I'm sorry. I know there's not anybody else in this room that has ever done that. I'm just, you know, I'm confessing, you know, because they, you know, they say confession is good for the soul. Those are those times, but I would rather argue with somebody and fight with them and then go about the whole thing and then later on just say I'm sorry, you know, that I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't have argued about arguing about, you know. And that's what we want to do with Jesus. Jesus just uh, said, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And I'm like, no, you're wrong. Jesus, you don't understand it. I, you know, there has to be something more. I have to do something more than just believe, right? He said, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Plain, simple, to the point. And yet we argue and we fight and we debate about this whole entire thing. 40, uh, verses 43 through 45 says, And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came, for, uh, came forth, bound hand and foot with the grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said, uh, said unto them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. One of the things that, you know, that I, I see over and over again is that we'll, uh, when we are newly saved, when a person is newly saved, we believe everything in the Bible. We have a hunger for it. We believe it. We're going, man, that's awesome. I don't understand how that could possibly be, but I believe it because it's his word. We have all this faith in it. We believe what the Bible says. And then as we get more dignified, as we get more in, you know, into church, somehow or another, it, it, it doesn't amaze us as, as much anymore. We've heard the stories. We've heard all these things. And all those are wonderful stories. That's why a lot of time. That's why most of the time I try to make the comment of saying accounts because we hear story and we think it's a fairy tale. 
We get this idea that it's not as amazing anymore. Oh, yeah, I remember that story of Lazarus, you know, being raised from the dead and everything. Do we not realize that, you know, that part of the fact that, yes, Lazarus was raised from the dead. It wasn't a fairy tale. It's, it still should be amazing and awesome to us, no matter how many times we read the Bible through. It amazes me that you have Jonah get swallowed up by a whale and lives. And then spits him out, and he goes out. I mean, that, uh, still, uh, that amazes me. I've never caught a fish that big. I don't think he caught the fish either. I think the fish caught him, but it still amazes me. And we, we will go on and we will read these accounts and somehow we get bored or even think that it's an exaggeration that, that somebody was lying about, this, about this, this book. That when they wrote it down that they were lying, and we forget the fact that it was written by holy men of old when, it, uh, when the Holy Ghost inspired them to write the book. I mean, it's surprising to us, but what we need to realize is that the same person that raises Lazarus from the dead is the same person that he gave Elijah the power to raise uh, two children from the dead. He calms the wind and the waves. While he was on earth, he raised kids from the dead as well. The blind see because of him. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the mute speak. Because why? Because he's God. We read his word. This is his holy word. We should believe it no matter what it says, and we oftentimes doubt it. He is God. Why? Because here's the thing is, we, we take our little situation and we think it's too big for God. But this is the same God that spoke creation into existence. He formed you out of dirt. He created everything that we see, feel, taste, and experience. So how can we get bored with reading his word? And how can we get bored with praying to an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing God who says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believe in me shall never, what? Die. And we want to doubt it. And we, want, we don't want to believe it. We see all these things. We know this has happened. Like I said, he created, I mean, think about that. He created you out of dirt. You're like, no, he, I was in my mama's belly. No, originally you were created the same way that Adam and Eve were, out of dirt. And we doubt the fact that God's going to be able to answer our prayer or even hear us. We doubt these things. I mean, Jesus was known in his ministry for loosening, you know, loosening people and setting them free. Do you believe that God can set you free? Do you believe that he can loose you know, those around, those who were once dead spiritually can bring them to life? And if you say no, then I'll say you need to come to the altar because of the fact that if you're saved, you should already be alive. Because you were dead and yet now you're alive. There should not be a question to us. We should not get bored reading this book. We should sit there and just be as amazed as we were the first time we read it or the first time maybe our mom or dad read it to us. We should still be amazed no matter what. I mean, if a person being raised from the dead doesn't get you excited, if you being created out of dirt and you living and breathing and that same person who has an attitude, we can have an attitude with God, Curse his existence, and yet he still allows you to live, and yet we still sit there and deny the fact that he, he can do that? that? That all we have to do is believe on him. He's telling us the truth. Do we believe that he's telling us the truth? 
that what he says in here can happen, right? I'm not going to read verses 46 through 57. I'm going to give like a little overview of it in a few of the verses. But what does it say in verse you know, 45? It says that many believed on Jesus. Many believed. I would think that would be pretty easy to do. I mean, you have a guy in a tomb with a rock over top of it, dead for four days. They roll a stone back. He comes out hopping in his grave clothes and everything else, and they loosen him, and he's alive. But the strange thing is it says only some of them believed. Like, did they think he was like David Copperfield or something like that, that he was like a magician? Presto, you know, here you go. Like, oh, it was a sleight-of-hand trick. It says only some of them believed. And then it says that some of them also uh, went to tell the Pharisees about what Jesus did. And the funny thing is, and the strange thing is, is that the Pharisees aren't mad at the fact that Jesus is raising people from the dead, performing miracles. I mean, yes, they want to kill him. I mean, that's pretty. But they're not really mad about that. But they're scared at the fact that in verse 48 it says that the Romans, uh, that the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. They're worried about a piece of land. They're worried about their status in this world. They're worried about what they can get because they think that this is, you know, because if their land goes away, that they'll no, uh, they'll no longer be God's people. And Caiaphas, who's, who's not really on Jesus' side, prophesies without himself knowing that he's prophesying. It says, you know, uh, nothing at all, nor consider that, is, uh, that it is expedient for us that one, my, uh, one man should die for the people. What is he saying? He's like, you know what? Let's kill him off, that way we can keep our land. But he's not realizing what he's actually saying. And it says, and that the whole nation perish not. This spake he of himself, or not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus, that Jesus should not die for that nation, and, uh, and not for that nation only, but that he should also, that he should also gather together in one the, uh, the children of God that were scattered abroad. Jesus, here's the thing is that they're missing because they, they want their piece of dirt. They want to be known as, you know, the people of God with actually having to follow God. Sound familiar nowadays? That there's people out there that call themselves believers but yet have no idea, don't act, you know, don't even believe that, you know, the Bible is true because it's the cool thing to do, the trendy thing to do that they're like, yes, I'm a Christian, and have no idea. They don't even know what the shortest verse in the Bible says. It's two words. And that's what they want. And here's the thing is, Jesus is not looking for a piece of land. He's not looking to become a landowner. Jesus is not looking for, why? Because you know what? He spoke and he created the world for us. Earth was created for us to enjoy. He's not looking for some real estate. He's not looking for a broker going, hey, you got a nice piece of land for me? He's not looking for, he's, he's not looking for a piece of land to call a nation or a certain ethnicity to call, be called his, his people. We have so many people nowadays that, that believe just because the shade of their skin determines whether or not God's going to love them or the fact that, that they believe that that makes a difference. It doesn't. God's a creative God. I believe the song says, you know, red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves all the little children out there. He does. He doesn't care what your ethnicity or your, or your background is. He doesn't care that 
that my, uh, that my ancestors came over on a boat over here legally. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't care that I have Italian, German, and English blood and then a whole myriad of other, other ones. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that this skin you know, is, is white. He doesn't care whether his skin's brown, black, red, yellow, like I said in the song. He doesn't care. What does he want? Or should I say, who does he want? You. He wants you to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that, that you, should, uh, you should go forth, you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a holy nation. We are a peculiar people. If you are a believer in Christ, that's who you are. That's the nation he's looking for, not real estate. He wants you. He wants us to believe upon him. Who is his family? There's so many times that people will get kind of frustrated because they have family members that don't know Jesus. But Jesus makes it clear who the family is, uh, who the family is that we should actually care about what they think about us. And let me tell you this, it's not your blood family. Mark chapter 3, verse 31 through 35 says this, There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing uh, without uh, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy, thy brethren seek for thee. And he answered them, say, uh, saying, Who is my mother? Or my brethren. He's not showing disrespect here, by the way. He's making a point. It says, And he looked around about on them, which sat about them, and said, Behold, my, uh, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of, of God, the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. He is saying that the church, those who are in Christ Jesus, they are our family. That's why, you know, you know, on Facebook, if I put something on there, I'll say my, my Crosville first family. There are going to be family members because of the fact that they, they think that they know you because they grew up. Some say, hey, you know, I used to you know, wipe your hiney when you were a baby and you changed your diapers. That they, they feel like what you have to say is not valid. But the thing is, is that who we need to, uh, who, who is our true family is those who are believers in Christ. That doesn't mean that we should stop like trying to win our family to Christ, our blood family to Christ. That doesn't mean that we should stop trying to. We should continue to try and bring them into God's family. That they are adopted into the family of God. We are his family. We are in his family. So what is the will of God? John 3, 16 and verse 17 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Remember, it says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent his son into the world, or sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. His point and his purpose is that we would believe on him, that we would be saved and not perish. That we'd not have everlasting damnation, but we'd have everlasting life. We, we think that death is final. 
But in reality, it is only the beginning. Death is not final. It is only the beginning because there is either eternal life or eternal damnation. Here's the thing is, is that right when you're... Who is alive this morning? Are you alive? Are you breathing? Are you here? If you say you're not, you know, not really here, then I think your neighbor needs a smacky one. But we think that death is final. Sometimes, you know, we believe that when it's, you know, it happens, it happens. But the thing is, is that we miss the point. Physical death happens. It's going to happen. But there's a choice in the fact of where you go after that physical death. And, that's, uh, and that right there does not end. There's eternal life or eternal damnation. If we want to live forever with our Creator, our Savior, the one who made us out of dirt, who wants to have fellowship and a relationship with us, we choose Him. Or you say, you know what, I really don't want to make that choice. I think I just want to. You're still making a choice. There's those ones out there that says, you know, I just think that all religions are the way. I'm sorry, Oprah, that doesn't work. Oprah is one of the ones that says that there are many ways to get to he uh, heaven. And so the Pope did, too. These are little side notes for you, by the way. Our choice in the matter is our choice. We can believe, we can choose upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Or we say, you know what, I reject him, I don't want him. It's our choice. But we do have that, uh, we do in reality have a choice. It's either eternal life or eternal damnation. Why? Because I said before, because you're not dead yet. You still have a choice. After, after you breathe your last breath, you have no more choice in the matter, you know, you know, in the matter where you go. You don't have any choice anymore. Your choice is right now what you're going to do today. If you're going to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ or you're going to keep on following your own ways and keep on doing your own thing. It's so simple and so easy, but yet we make it so difficult and so hard upon ourselves. We want to make it so much more difficult. Be like, oh, well, that's the reason why I didn't accept Jesus, because he made it so difficult. I mean, nobody really had to talk you into the fact of the chair that you're sitting in. Nobody ever said, do you believe that that chair can hold you? Did somebody come up to you this morning and just say, uh, did, I, did I walk up to you and say, hey, Doug, do you believe that that chair can hold you? You just sat down and you believed in it. It wasn't that difficult, right? But yet when it comes to Jesus and, and giving our life to him, surrendering him uh, to him because of the fact that he gave us life in the first place, we have a hard time to, uh, you know, with doing that. We don't want to admit it. But I'm here to tell you that we can respond and give our life to Jesus Christ this morning. Because the Bible says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That because of the, uh, because th that we have sinned, that there is a wage and that is death. It says, for all, it says for the wages of sin is death, right? And so because we've sinned, there's a wage and we've got to pay it with death, spiritual death. Revelation chapter 20 says, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. There's a second death. Revelation 21 says, but the fearful un um, and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the fire which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is what? The second death. We know this 
For some of us, that, you know, we've heard this you know, before time and time again, and yet we still refuse it. We still don't believe it. But I want to tell you that maybe today is the day that you say, you know what, I'm going to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ because God does not want you to go to hell. He doesn't want you to go. What did it say in the latter part of John 3, 16 and 17? It says that he didn't come to what? Condemn the world, but that through him that they might be saved. The latter portion of that verse that I read earlier says, but the gift of God is eternal life. So there's wages for our sin, which is death, but the gift of God, if we were to receive that gift of eternal life, which is through Jesus Christ, we're on our way to heaven. Because we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it says, For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that, and that not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We can't earn salvation. We can't pay it off. We can't sit there and say, you know, I give this much to the church every month or every week or every year. Or I'm a good person. I do these things. There's a lot of people out there that brag about being a good person. I haven't killed anybody yet. That's how they measure whether or not they're good. I'm glad you haven't killed anybody. As I said earlier, this is how we know that... Uh, this is uh, Romans 5, 8 says, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I said this, you know, and I, I paraphrase this this morning, but here's the verse in John, uh, Romans chapter 10. It says that if thou sh uh, shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and uh, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man, uh, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? And I, I, I leave this as an open invitation because of the fact that you, I, I've met people in church that have been going to church for like 30 some odd years and never got saved. They thought that they were saved, but they weren't. It's a plain and simple thing that if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. With every head bowed and every eye closed. If that's you, you say, you know what, I want to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to, I, I believe what God's word says. I, I, I believe. Then I ask that you would repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I know I deserve to go to hell, but I believe you died upon the cross for me and rose again. Please save me right now and give me eternal life. I'm only trusting in you, Jesus. Amen.